0: this is uh, the uh, philosopher Martha Nussbaum. We all begin our lives as helpless babies, dependent on others for comfort, food, and survival itself. And even though we develop a degree of mastery and independence, we always remain alarmingly weak and incomplete, dependent on others, and on an uncertain world for whatever we are able to to achieve. As we grow, we we all develop a wide range of emotions responding to this predicament. Fear that bad things will happen and that we will be powerless to ward them off. Love for those who help and support us. Grief when a loved one is lost. Hope for good things in the future anger when someone else damages something we care about. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. A creature without any needs would never have reasons for fear or grief or hope or anger. But for that very reason, we are often ashamed of our emotions and of the relations of need and dependency bound up with them. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. This gesture of recognizing needs, this kind of foundational recognition of of needs, is um, Quite helpful, insofar as it um, it begins to mitigate some of the shame that we actually have about our inner life, and the recognition of our our like fundamental need is also, uh, for me, a kind of basis for our ethics. See, uh, that we are actually um, yeah, small creatures who depend on each other. Mother Teresa says, uh, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Now, normally, we talk about bringing mindfulness into our lives, right? We talk about bringing kind of some element of choicefulness into uh, our lives, right? We're like we're trying to remember to be mindful during the day, right? We've all played that game yeah of like trying to remember but how do you remember when you're forgetting right right? it's actually kind of the the habit of of remembering the training of the heart mind that reminds us yeah And so, over time, we actually elevate the baseline level of mindfulness, the the kind of the the uh, level of mindfulness of equanimity that we have when we're not trying to be mindful. That actually increases over time. But um, to me, it's actually less about. Uh, choosing mindfulness in a particular moment and more around the kind of momentum of our practice and not getting backed into those karmic corners from which the only escape is through suffering. Yeah? So to some extent we're actually, like the Dharma is better at preventing fires than putting them out. Like slowly conditioning our lives to not get backed into corners. And that happens through the kind of elevation of mindfulness over time. But it's not so choiceful. It's not so choiceful. And the truth is, for all that we talk about mindfulness here, um, I don't really care about it that much. Like, 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 I care about suffering. Yeah? I don't care about mindfulness. <laughs> I, um, there, A friend of mine has a bumper sticker and she says, like, I break for suffering. You know? And that. that, that's right. Yeah? Like, that is actually what we care about moment by moment. We actually care about that. So, what I'm pointing to is that um, I think maybe it's less about trying to consciously bring mindfulness into, our, into the world. And that uh, the suggestion that I want to make is the way we really bring the practice most directly into the world is through our ethics through our sila, this this increasing sensitivity that we have to the relations of dependency, to how we impact each other, to the reverberations between hearts. A Tibetan uh, teacher, uh, Bob Thurman said, and he's kind of like chiding, uh, maybe somebody, uh, and saying like, you know, you folks, I think he was talking to an insight, insight meditation teacher. He's kind of pl- playfully teasing. He's like, you know, you, you folks always talk about practice, 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 practice. When's, when's the concert, you know? Right? And, um, uh, I, what I would say is you could make a case that our, our ethical life, that's it. You know, That is what we're practicing for. So to actually bring ethics into our life uh, involves mindfulness and wisdom and love, everything we've talked about. There are strong connections between sila, this Pali word, sila, or conduct, and mindfulness. Um, To be mindful of goodness brings a kind of love. And to be mindful of pain also brings a kind of love. And that symmetry is a kind of the miracle of mindfulness, that it actually amplifies goodness and weakens the forces of suffering. The more attuned we are to our hearts, the clearer our ethical behavior will be. So the the more we actually attune, the more we can feel It's like the karmic loop gets shortened. We actually, there is a certain kind of like feedback when we're out of alignment with our own uh, values that uh, is quite immediate. The more unified the mind gets, the deeper the love can be, the more it can feel. Boundless, yeah. The more we start to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, that's actually becomes like the most um, prominent kind of feature of the gaze, that to actually look at another person and to, to see oneself in them, to see them in you. Our, our ethics are a, kind of a, um, a field guide to our mind, yeah. they actually shine a kind of spotlight on where we cling. Like to to identify the the kind of sites of clinging in myself, I only have to like listen to myself talk. You know. You just it just conveys like you can just hear where the mind is snagged. Now uh, I want to be a little cautious because to to talk about. Um, to talk about Sila, it often kind of activates certain egoic processes, and we start kind of grading ourselves um you know, like well, on this precept, I'm like b plus <laughs> and on that one, uh, uh you know whatever it's like but it's a very self referential kind of process and whatever, guilt and and instead the invitation is not not like how can we actually compound the narrative of me, yeah. But actually look what what kind of life actually expresses alignment with our own hearts. And this is a process that doesn't end as far as I can see. Like there's no end to how beautiful the heart can be, and uh, you're you're feeling that. That's that was um, that is one of the kind of insights of of retreat. Sort of sense of. Uh, some of the qualities of heart that are <clears throat> uh, obscured by busyness. Often at, at the end of retreat, uh, the thought arises that um, uh, if we were trying to start a cult we would have run the retreat basically the same way. (laughs) We would have woken you up early and put you into silence and tell you to talk about your own deepest personal experience. Uh, every time doubt arises, we would have said, let go, you know, like, uh, right? And, um, but if we were actually doing that, at the end, we would pull a kind of bait and switch where we would say uh, that the, the goodness that you know in your heart is actually dependent on us, right? And that's the, delusion. Yeah. It's only ever goodness resonating with goodness. Yeah. To the extent that we can see goodness in, in anyone, it's a function of that resonance. Yeah. And so, um, our ethics is uh, to a large extent, like the ethics of non-clinging, the kind of qualities of heart that are left in the wake of letting go. Clinging and love, it, it get, they get tangled up for us. Sometimes clinging kind of masquerades as love. But clinging is always about uh, control, and love is about uh, generosity. Love is the, the kind of open, unclenched fist of letting go. And so we start to actually distill these qualities of of heart and mind out. And uh, there's a certain kind of trust that we have of what is left in the wake of letting go. What is left when we uh, fully... Metabolize the 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 greed and the aversion. We don't have to manufacture goodness or joy or love in the wake of letting go. And this is our kind of um, yeah the foundation of our of our sila. Gil Fransdal said something like, um, I, enlightenment, "Enlightenment isn't when you get free; it's when you free everything else." Yeah. There's a uh, a debate sometimes between uh, kind of the virtues of the Arhat or the Bodhisattva, yeah. So the Arhat of this kind of like, you know, exquisite attunement to the subtlest, wispiest forms of suffering in oneself, and uprooting these kind of forces of craving at their at their depths, you know, so that uh, it it's not possible for for any kind of clinging to arise, right? And it's so uh, it's like you're getting so deeply refined into. Like um, the cultivation, and then this this bodhisattva, kind of where the dedication is to make one's life be of benefit for all beings, to save all beings, to um, to to live in kind of devotion to this vow of of um, of saving all beings, and. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, a monastic uh, who's been influential in this, this uh, scene, uh, Sumedho was asked one time by, uh, by a, a practitioner, like, which is the better path, the arahata or the bodhisattva? And uh, his response was, that kind of question is asked by people who understand absolutely nothing about Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I don't really understand what Samato is saying there but um, I think I think what is being pointed to is that um it's a kind of false dichotomy in some way and that uh, we're speaking to a kind of convergence between wisdom and love. And the truth is that like I'm not um I, I no longer really trust the wisdom the insight that does not catalyze love yeah if it if it does not lead us into a kind of ordinary goodness and non harmfulness what what is its value exactly yeah. no the the Dharma and its kind of ethics, it's not meant to to solve every moral conundrum or problem, right? Like in in philosophy, in moral philosophy, there are like these complex kind of questions of of uh you know, what would you do you're on a trolley and the trolley is you know, heading towards is going to kill five people, and if you pull the switch it goes to the other track, but then you kill that one person, but the train really wasn't going to go there unless you pull it, and what, you know, and then, like, talk about that for a while, you know, like, and, um, uh, Dharma's not going to help with that stuff, you know, it's really not, but the truth is, most moral questions not tricky, right? It's not so complex, yeah? Now, typically we, we associate morality with, uh, with strong views and certainty. But uh, in my, my experience, the kind of approach of not knowing is very important as we cultivate and refine our ethical lives. Often, uh, we get kind of fundamentalist about our ethics, or we are clinging kind of masquerades as, as knowing. And many of our, our views, if we really look, they're actually born of a certain kind of fear or greed. And the work of delusion is to rationalize greed and hatred. That's like how it operates. It ra- you know, Wes has said, like, we're not so much rational animals, we're rationalizing animals, yeah? And so we can actually, if we, unless we really unpack the way we build our worlds, the way we build our knowing, Greed and hatred can be the kind of um, unseen building blocks in the construction of views. And so um, this not knowing, not knowing, which is a kind of core capacity in our spiritual practice to be untethered from the normal uh, reference points too much knowing, in other words, can be problematic. This is a, a researcher who uh, who studies overconfidence. Um, it's actually like a whole body of research on this. Uh, so, overconfidence is the mother of all psychological biases. It is one of the largest and most ubiquitous of the many biases to to which human judgment is vulnerable. For example, 93% of American drivers claim to be better than the median. If we were appropriately humble about psychological vulnerabilities, we'd be better able to protect ourselves from the errors to which human nature makes us prone. They go on to say, If overconfidence can get us into so much trouble, it seems to follow that we should reduce it. But how much should we completely minimize confidence? That's a recipe for perpetual doubt and inaction. If you instead turn to self-help books for guidance, you might be tempted to come away with the opposite conclusion. The challenge is keeping your confidence up. These books come with exciting titles like, You Are a Badass, How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. Books like these make greater confidence sound awfully inviting, but surely the right answer is not that we should be maximally confident. There is another way, a middle way, between too much and not enough. This middle way is not the path to mediocrity, mediocrity, far from it. It is exceptionally rare to be well calibrated in one's confidence. It requires that you understand yourself, that you know your limitations and what opportunities are not worth pursuing. It requires that you act confidently based on what you know, even if it means taking a stand but it also means that requires the willingness to consider the possibility that you are wrong, to listen to evidence, and to change your mind. This is a rare combination of courage and intellectual humility, which leads to actively open-minded thinking. It takes just the right amount of confidence. So Sila or Sila we are training in embodying freedom in embodying non clinging, embodying letting go in in attuning to the impacts of of our, our lives on others now um, some obstructions to this refinement. So I'm alluding to this already, this sense of of clinging to views, the ways in which views get imbued with a certain kind of egoic investment. And maybe you know that moment uh, at the end of maybe a quiet sitting when the bell rings and you open your eyes And there's, yeah, there's a kind of, there's no need to believe anything. There's no need to prove anything. There's no need to announce, convince, persuade anything. There's almost no need to even take up a view at all, right? We know that that kind of the softness of that moment, but of course it's not not always like that. Yeah, there's like a lot of times that it feels like um, uh, with things that we feel passionately about with our ethical life. It's like we we feel like the more kind of forceful we are, the the clearer our commitment is, or something, but it's complicated. So, what I suggest is actually, we're, we're afraid that if we let go, that it's going to undercut the force of our views or something, or, or the force of our values. But what I would say is that actually it's... it's um, the more deeply we can let go, the more morally persuasive we are. Yeah. The more morally persuasive we are. We refine our ethical life by being open to feedback, being a kind of open system. And in an important way, our whole dharma life is about taking feedback, yeah. in the sense of we're living and looking, what are the impacts of living in this way? What are the impacts of organizing my life in this way? What are the impacts of acting out these impulses or not these? And so there's this kind of, we're awake to what is happening, to cause and effect in our life. And um, this is important because the world and other people will give us feedback. And we depend on that in a deep way because we can never have a 360 degree view of our own self. There's always something of ourselves that is transparent to ourselves. And so we actually rely on, on others in this way. And in developing our kind of uh, ethical life, this feedback is, is so um, it's so important. it helps us to see feedback helps us to see the the architecture of our self view feedback helps us see actually the way we build the self so um Some, some kinds of, of heart disease, they, um, uh, you kind of can't, you know, doctors can't assess them when the heart is at rest. You actually need to exercise and like, uh, you know, do a stressed cardiac stress test to actually get the heart moving and then assess the blood flow and electrical activity of the heart. And, um. With self view, sometimes we have to like, we actually have to stimulate the self in order to really see the nature of our clinging, the self views where we're actually caught. And feedback is a mechanism for this feedback is actually a way that we can shine a light on the kind of the way the the places of clinging and how we define ourselves and what we think makes us of value and so the remarkable point is that this actually works whether the feedback is on target or off base that's actually immaterial. It doesn't even matter. Right? Normally it's like we think, oh, this feedback is, is on, okay, I have to own that, right? But that's wrong, and I can refuse it, right? And it may be wrong, but it doesn't matter. Because if it stings, it's highlighting a certain kind of fragility, a certain kind of clinging in self. Yeah, that that makes sense. To the extent that we become defensive and need to refuse that, it doesn't actually matter whether it's right or wrong. It's it's a kind of way a, a a way of understanding ourselves more deeply. And. To the extent that, that any self-definition has emotional sting, to that extent our behavior can be distorted. That when we're actually privileging this way of curating the self, our actual work it becomes compromised so like if i'm if i'm intent on on being seen as a as a, as a good meditation teacher yeah if that actually becomes like a, a that if that gets prioritized then it actually displaces the work which is to be of some use to be useful Right? And so we, we want to actually look at the ways in which the kind of um, way we perform and reinforce the sense of self actually compromises our, the freedom and effectiveness of us in the world. And uh, feedback is, is quite, quite critical in this development. Now, to to do this, we we need to tolerate some measure of disorientation. Um, part of why we're our yeah, it's our defensiveness makes it it kind of hampers our ethical evolution, and um, the defensiveness arises when we're like not able to tolerate the disorientation of the the cage of self being rattled. When the cage of self gets rattled, it's like we just do almost anything to get back to familiar ground. You know? Like when, when that ground is undercut, it's like it ignites such strong feelings because we have this moment of kind of free fall when the person we thought we were all of a sudden becomes suspect, and we're kind of deliberating: Is that who I am? Am I? Am I who you're telling me I am? Am I who I think I am? And in that gap, there is this kind of like, yeah, this free fall. And then, in order to re-establish that sense of of safety, of familiar ground, we mobilize a lot of anger or defensiveness to say, no, 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 you don't know me. And the invitation in in practicing with this is actually to become more tolerant of that free fall. To just kind of hang with that even though it feels very alien. And so, um... We, we commit to, um, to evolving ethically. It's a kind of sense of, um, yeah, it's bound up, our ethical life is bound up with the rest of our practice, with the depths to which we settle, with the capacities of wisdom. Ajahn Chah said, Sila Samadhi Panya? One thing, one fruit, yeah. different aspects of the same fruit, and this takes, um, I think, a lot of a lot of courage. It's it's courageous, I think, to uh, to try to grow ethically. you know, what I notice in myself is that I want to think of myself as a good person, and I don't want to change my behavior. (laughs) It's kind of a bind, you know. Um, So, so there's a, a, a way in which I feel like I feel, um, it's my responsibility to be awake, sensitive to the places of, of moral incoherence in me. The places where I cannot justify my life. Yeah. When, I was, um, when I was in college and I read this, this book. Um, that was uh, basically making the argument that uh, in wealth, you know, in wealthy nations, the um, the kind of goodness that a hundred dollars accomplishes is just almost zero in comparison to the amount of goodness that can be done for the most vulnerable populations in the world. And um, and through a kind of very careful argument, argumentation, like I got to this place where it was just like I just had to look at you know my life and what you know what I spent money on or something, and, and then what, how, what that hundred dollars could do in a distant place where the suffering was incredibly intense. And I came to this kind of place of, of a sense of moral incoherence, yeah. Like I could actually no longer justify my life. You know, the trivial amount of pleasure that I that, you know, a hundred dollars would buy a college student, yeah. And uh, and. That, that's a, an uncomfortable place. It's happening. It's, it keeps happening. I like keep waking up to these places where I cannot justify my life. And I am trying to ask honest questions. And not make assumptions about the answer, but it, it's questions about, like, what is mine? How much do I owe to the welfare of others? What do I owe to animals? What do I owe to future generations? What do I owe to the most vulnerable on this planet? Yeah. And um, you know it kind of occurred to me like like the 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 saint is extremely rare. I think about Martin Luther King or, like, the saint is extremely rare, and I am no saint. But the question arose, like, is anything less ethically justifiable? Just because the saint is extremely rare does not mean our sila has less. Havel. Havel said, um, "Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out." What What are the implications? of the silence for our ethical life? Can we stay alive to the questions in a way that's not shaming or... but attunes us more and more deeply to this the foundation of Dharma, uh, which is uh, that that our lives be of benefit yeah. that we not harm ourselves, we not harm others It's a time for radical hearts. No? Collective level, it's a time for radical hearts, and we find the whole of the Dharma there, it's all there. said for a moment. the last album of his life uh, Leonard Cohen sang, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine.